0: Welcome everyone to the Booktopia podcast. It's Tony Nash with you today, the CEO of Booktopia and boy, are we in for a treat. I have Miriam Margulies, the famous world famous actor and now author um, with us this evening in Australia. It's, uh, it's the morning in the UK. Welcome to the program.
1: It's so lovely to be with you, Tony, and thank you very much for asking me.
0: Oh, that's so wonderful. And I think everyone straight away, um, your voice is very distinct. I'm sure people stop you in the street and they, they heard you from a distance. You were speaking and they go, hey, I know that voice. Um, obviously, your your acting career has been going um, for decades now, of course. You've been very fortunate to have a long career in that industry, and, and um, I know um, that your voice and, and the, the, I guess, the history around you being an actor really came from, from speaking and the the voice, do you want to just share with us about, like, where all that, where, where all that energy, where all those origins kind of came from that set you off on this journey for uh, being an actor?
1: I've been very lucky, as you say, to have lasted this long, it it does surprise me. And I started with a, a very big dollop of luck because my parents were wonderful and they loved me. And I think that's what keeps things going. If you if you are loved and you know you're loved, you're confident. And it's that confidence which took me through any vicissitudes that might have been along the way and long periods of unemployment because I wasn't always well known and successful. It was often not the case. But mummy always said to me, You're a star, you're wonderful, you will make it. Don't be disappointed, don't don't dally on the way, just go forward and believe in yourself. She always said that. And even after she had died, I remembered her words and and so it has proved. But I think what what got me going, first of all, was that luck and being in with my parents, going to a very good school and having the chance at university afterwards to do lots of productions. So although I never went to drama school and I was never trained, I had experience of acting. And that's what teaches you. Experience teaches you things. I would like to have gone to a drama school, but by the time I left Cambridge, I was too old. I didn't want to start all over again and be a student. So I just flung myself into the business. And somehow or other, 60 or 70 years later, I'm, I'm still here.
0: So, so given like you, you obviously family has been like part of your, I guess, part of the, the root, um, the roots of kind of like your foundation layer and that if you think about that, and if you think about, um, the influence of your parents, just explain to us siblings or cousins, did you have many, or was you part, were you part of a big family? Did that network?
1: I have no brothers and sisters, and our family was always quite small, because obviously they came from Europe, and um, many of them were left in Europe, and they died in Europe. They were murdered by the Nazis, many, but I didn't know that when I was growing up. My parents were born in England, um, well, daddy in in Glasgow, mummy in in, uh, Liverpool, actually. She was very proud of that. She used to remark on it Um, although she grew up in London and um, I have cousins not many and I love them I love my cousins I'm very fond of them but it was feeling a little bit desperate that I had such a small family that made me so keen on genealogy Mm. and that's one of my passions now and has been for about golly, I should think about 35, 40 years, I started looking into the background of my family and it was absorbing. And one of the things that I found out was that my great grandfather on my mother's side was a criminal. And um, he'd been sentenced in 1877 to seven years hard labor for fraud and receiving stolen goods. It was called Jewish crime. That was in London, England.
0: So, so which, which countries, um, in Europe, did they come from your family?
1: My father's family came from Belarus and I have been back there, uh, a couple of times to see the, uh, to see if there was any, any trace and there isn't. Hmm. In fact, 25% of Belarussia were slaughtered by the Nazis, not just Jews, but 25% of the whole population. And um, they came from a little village called Amdur, or now it's called Indura, and um, a very typical little Eastern European village. And um, my mother's family came from Poland, from a village called Margonin, which was a a more prosperous village than my my, my father's and um, they left in i think 1860 so they arrived in england in 1860 and my father's family arrived in scotland in 1870
0: wow so that's well before the um the, the exodus from europe because of the nazis they they got out you know almost a century before so it's it's they were well on their way. So everyone should really know that there's a little bit of a connection between uh, my family and Miriam and hence probably one of the reasons why I could you know, jump to the front of the queue to get an interview with Miriam about her book today because my mum was a, a a quite well-known Australian Jewish genealogist when she was alive and my dad also and uh, was involved and through mum's work, uh, Miriam and... And my mum Ricky uh, were able to cross paths. Just remind me, Miriam, was it at a cemetery that you guys met? Is that is that how it, your paths crossed?
1: I honestly can't remember when I first met Ricky. It could well have been because I, I love going to cemeteries. Um, and she was a, a remarkable genealogist and very useful to me, showing me how. How to trace and the techniques to use, and I never thought I'd be speaking to her son on zoom. Wonderful
0: <laughs> I know' crazy and and so and so that's the reason why we're connected and and your passion for genealogy, mum was certainly passionate about it as well um and when you talk about um family dying in the Holocaust, of course, um many of my relatives also died. At the hands of the Nazis in concentration camps, and were murdered as well. So well, I, I know, um, a little about what that feels like and what it can do to to someone in terms of your place in the world. But, but that aside, I mean, you you ended up going on an incredible journey, of of um, acting, and you talked in the beginning before just about how. Um, Out of work, you were, and like, don't really know that you're really an actor till many years into the process, where where you start to accumulate a whole bunch of jobs. In fact, I I read in uh, in the notes you've had 500 jobs, which is a hell of a resume. Um, and and like um, so so when did it start to feel like you were you were transitioning from a wannabe actor to all right I'm really on track now what what was when did it all start to feel like you were there
1: There are I suppose certain highlights in my career which were like rungs on a ladder that lifted me up to the next level. And one of them was a television series called The Girls of Slender Means, which was in nineteen seventy-six, I think. 70, 76 probably. Um, written by Muriel Spark and Clive James, dear Clive, bless him. He gave me a rave in the Observer magazine. He was the um in the newspaper, the Sunday newspaper, The Observer, it's still going, and he was the television critic at the time and that was a moment of, of recognition from the public and then I, I suppose then there's a long long gap and then in the 80s I started with Sonia Fraser who was another actress by the way I know Australians say actor and I, I don't I'm old-fashioned I'm an actress an actor is a man so i'm i'm referring to myself as an actress and that's what it says on my passport um and sonia and i uh we collaborated on a kind of play not exactly a play but it turned out to be a one-woman show about charles dickens called dickens women Mm -hmm. Uh, i played 23 characters two men and 21 women from the works of charles dickens and i told the story of his life using those characters using the actual words that he wrote for those characters and showing how it linked up with his own development as an artist and that really did propel me into critical acclaim i'm very proud of it i don't think i'll ever do it again but i did it for 25 years all around the world and it happened in australia too and um i'm happy that that I was able to do it because it was hard. It was a very hard thing to do. I don't like one woman shows, but I feel I've done a, a good one. And um, that was one of the highlights, certainly. And then I did Wicked. I did Wicked on Broadway. That was a big deal for me. I toured America with The Importance of Being Earnest with Lynn Redgrave playing Lady Bracknell, and I was Miss Prism. That was another high. Then I went to Hollywood and I did various films. One of them, uh, Little Dorrit, won me a Critics Circle Award. And that made me come to America, actually, and come to live there. And then I did lots of, lots of films. And the most distinguished, I think, was Martin Scorsese's The Age of Innocence. And I won the BAFTA Best Supporting Actress for that. I'm very proud of that. So there were some highlights along the way. And you, then of course I came to, to Australia and I was able to play some terrific parts in Australia. And quite recently I did The Lady in the Van in Melbourne and um, I, I did The Way of the World in Sydney and uh, a, a wonderful part in, in Melbourne, uh, which only Bette Midler has performed. I'll eat you last. It was called, uh, but it was a one-woman show. And in um, Adelaide, I, I performed at the State Theatre there. So, I've uh, I've had a, a career in, I would say, three continents, <laughs> and that's very pleasing.
0: When you think about your, um, you know, your younger actors and actresses coming through and they look at your stellar career and you go, but hold on a second. I really didn't start to get momentum until my forties. Um, which if you said that to a doctor or to a, a lawyer or to any other professional, uh, te- a teacher, school teacher, it's, it's incredibly late. I mean, okay. I started Booktopia when I was 40. So I know uh, what it's like to start to, um, Take advantage of all my experience and everything that I've learned before, then to then apply that to what I was doing. But is it is it common that um, actors and actresses um, sometimes it really comes late, um, and after all those years of investing and not really getting um, the roles that you you get today, you probably get your choice of roles today. And is it is it frustrating, or is it do you just simply? live with, like you have other pursuits and other interests, that um, it's it's just one of the other things that you do is acting and therefore um, it's not as stressful as it might sound to the rest of us.
1: I think many people who went through the the doldrums uh, leave the business. The different thing was that I stayed. I stayed on doing what I loved doing And gradually, I won them over (laughs) and people started to want me in their shows. And I mean, obviously, Harry Potter would have been a big lift up because once I was in that, everybody knew me. And uh, I, I think it's just you have to have inner belief. My mother believed in me. She made me believe in myself. And so even when I didn't get work, I thought one day I will. One day I will break through. And I did, and it took a long time. And maybe people would say, "Well, for goodness' sake, you should have you should have gone on and done something else." No, I wanted to do what I was doing.
0: For all of us to 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 persevere and to persist and to to focus on your dreams. And and so, if we think about the book, and most people know when I interview them, I don't really want to talk about the book because I want everyone to go out and buy the book. And Miriam. Want you to so do and, i <laughs> yeah that's right
1: um
0: and and so we want we want you to go out and buy the book and it's available in bookshops all over the world and of course online with companies like booktopia and uh, it's exciting when you when you know that your book is kind of being released around the world is and you think when you think about it and you think like was it a well this is actually from what i read it's your is it your second? Like your first autobiography was at nine years old. Is that right? And now you've, you've backed it up with another one yes. or has there been ones in between as well?
1: I wrote an autobiography when I was nine. That is a little precocious. I wish I had it with me so that I could get pointers from it. But over the years it's disappeared. I don't know where it is. Mummy was very proud of it. She would take it out and show it to people. But I wrote this one because the publishers made me an offer I couldn't refuse and it was COVID and I had the time and I went to Italy I wrote it when I was in Tuscany which is where I went for eight months because I couldn't stand London I couldn't stand not seeing people I couldn't stand being shut in my house and I found a friend who was going over to the south of France so I drove over with her And actually, we've made a little film of that journey, which you can see in the Guardian newspaper, they made a a film of it and put it on the the newspaper, but I, I wanted to write absolutely about who I was. Because I've been in lots of chat shows, I think a lot of people know me from that but they don't know what I'm really like. They just see the persona that is presented on that program at that moment with those people. And the point of those programs, and I'm very grateful for them, is to entertain. That's the whole point of it. People have had tough lives. They come in in the evenings, they sit down, and they want to have a good time, they want to laugh. And thank God I'm able to make them laugh sometimes. And I do it, not with a a set script it just pops out whatever i say just pops out like today when i'm talking to you everything is just popping out and i i wanted to write a book that wasn't just a pop out that it was the real me talking to the person who's going to hopefully buy the book and present myself not in a favorable light but, but in the light so what you read is what I really am. I haven't made myself better than I am. I know that I've got faults and I also think that I've got virtues that people don't know about. And I'm not shy in talking about that either. And that's, that's the idea of it to present the whole person as honestly, and in as much depth as I can. And I go into my sex life, which is varied and interesting. I go into my professional life, which I hope is varied and interesting, and I go into my political life, and ditto with that. And if you don't like me at the end of it, well, tough, tough titty.
0: <laughs> and was it was there much that ended up on the cutting room floor, like um, with with all of the people that you've met and all the circumstances and situations that you've ended up in, was there... Was it difficult to work out what was going to end up in there versus what you had to leave out?
1: Well, of course, selection is crucial and the most difficult thing. I mean, the two things that are important and difficult are selection and priority. What is important? What isn't important? And I didn't want to talk about celebrities i know that that's what people often expect and they want gossip well this isn't about gossip this is about me and if you don't like me then don't buy the book because it's all about me <laughs> and but it is the truth and along the way naturally i met celebrities and i write about the celebrities that i met And some of the stories are salacious, and some of them are pathetic, and some of them are just rage. So there's a mixture. Uh, And that's what a life is like, a life is mixed. And I did leave out some things. One of the things that I left out, and I didn't do it consciously, I actually forgot. But I'm telling everybody because I think it's important to show all sides of myself. I loved my mother very deeply, and she's a huge part of the book. But when she was um, in her 60s, she had a stroke and she was paralysed and unable to speak. And for seven and a half years, she was cared for at home. And it was incredibly frustrating and difficult. I was working at the time. My father was her main carer and he was a retired GP, and so he was able to do that. But I found it really, really difficult. And one day, I actually hit her. I hit my mother. And I feel that I have to admit to that. It's, it, it's horrible to recall it. I don't know what it was about. It was just, she was being difficult. And of course, why wouldn't she be? Because she was in a, In a prison but that's what a stroke does and i thought that i should have put that in the book and i i I wish i had i i I just forgot about it i suppose i pushed it out of my out of my mind because i was so ashamed because millions of people are carers and look after somebody 24 7 and it is grueling and exhausting and frustrating and i know what that's like because it happened to me obviously in a fit of frustration, I hit her. And immediately I was overcome with horror and I, I hugged her and apologized and she, bless her dear soul, she forgave me. And that's something I think I should have written about and I didn't. Mm. But other things, I've I put in most most things and I think the selection I made is a just selection and i know it's the truth
0: i think it's one of those things that i won't say daughters um probably kids children have the luxury of being able to lash out like that at their parents because they know like a punching bag they will take every single wallop because that they love them unconditionally so sometimes kids have that as their as their as an option and as as um horrific as it might sound and 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 as you reflect about it i think that sometimes that's all you need you rather than going and hitting some stranger on the street or or sabotaging yourself i think that's the the one of the one of the things that a parent um, may at some point in time have to um, endure and it's, thank you for sharing that with us. I really appreciate that. Um, one of the, you, you talked about, um, it's interesting that you talked, I'll just share with my, about my mum again, I think it's quite funny really, uh, the difference between our two mums is uh, I remember being in the kitchen one day and um, I said to my mum, who you know, who you, of course, who you know, um, one day, I want to be famous, and my mum looked at me and she goes, "Oh, I couldn't think of anything worse." <laughs> <laughs> and and it's, it was such a odd, it was such an unusual reaction, and and your mum was like the you know believe in yourself and you can go out and do anything you want and even though my mum did do that you know her and like she with all of us kids my brother and my sister it's just like find your way do what you want to do um she was it was she was never a helicopter mom or trying to push us in a certain way it was about finding your own way um but it is different i think in terms of how your your mum kind of encouraged you not to be famous but to do really follow that pursuit which then of course fame um, was the uh, eventually caught up with you as you continue to build that um, collection of, of performances and and you're recognized in that way but um, uh, it's funny how some parents um, will will encourage you in different ways. Um, uh,
1: well my mother was the product of a particular time in history and also a particular attitude towards Jews and people who were not well-educated she was always wanting to better herself and therefore to better me and everything she did once she was uh, had left school which she did at 14 and went to work in a dress shop she wanted to ri- rise in the social scale she knew that she was lower middle class and at the bottom of the pile so to speak And I don't know whether she knew that her grandfather had been a criminal, that I don't know. She never spoke of it. She never mentioned it to me and I didn't discover it until long after she was dead. So it it was just a, a blank, but she married my father because he was a doctor. She didn't love him when she married him. She married him because he was a step up for her. Then she grew to love him and they had an absolutely wonderful marriage but it was interesting to me that she told me that because I always used to every day I would get into bed with her in the mornings before I went to school and we would talk and share things and she would say we are a fortress family and I think that's one of the chapters actually in my book and I don't know whether that was a good thing or not. I know my therapist later in life, when I had therapy, she didn't think it was a good thing, but, <clears throat> uh, but I think, you know, when, when you feel at the bottom of the pile, when it's a struggle to, to be socially acceptable, that's what mummy felt. And she was a whirlwind of activity and energy and passion to rise, to, to be, she was a social climber. They have word there's a word for what she was, a social climber. And that's how I got to university almost, because Daddy was a doctor, and one of the patients in, in, in his list on his list was uh, Isaiah Berlin, who was a, a very famous public intellectual of the, of the time, who'd come as a refugee with his parents from Riga in Latvia and settled in Oxford and he was a fellow of all souls. Now, how Mummy knew that, I don't know, because she wasn't educated. She didn't go to university or read books at all. But she knew that Daddy had a patient called Isaiah Berlin. He was actually knighted, he was Sir Isaiah Berlin. And uh, when it came time for me to go to university, you have to have a sponsor. Somebody has to sign the form. And Mummy said to Daddy, "Um, Joe, uh, you're, you've got a patient, Isaiah Berlin, haven't you? And he said, Yes. He, she said, I want you to ask him to supper. I want him to sign Miriam's sponsorship form. He said, I can't do that. He's a patient. This, this is, would be most improper. She said, Do it. And he did it, you see, because that's, Mummy was like that. So one evening, Isaiah Berlin came to, to, to supper. Mummy cooked a super. A very traditional she was a traditional jewish cook you know roast chicken chicken soup with matzo balls and uh, everything delicious and then made a a pie for after and he had a lovely meal and she said to him you know isaiah we, miriam's going to university we hope it would be wonderful if you could sign the form and he he was such a darling he was a lovely fella i mean it was lovely of him to come he probably didn't want to come to supper with his doctor, but uh, and a, and a great brain. I mean, internationally renowned, and he but was completely unintelligible when he spoke. You couldn't understand what he said. So it was oh, I the to my doctor. Well, you thought the funny doctor just hadn't. I was and now you said you need to much. They were Sorry, I understand. We are sorry, are sorry Nobody knew what he was saying, but he was all very good-humoured, and he signed my form. Now, I don't know how Mummy knew this, but no university in the world would turn down Isaiah Berlin's protégé. It just wouldn't happen. And so I got into Oxford, and I got into Cambridge, and I got a, a sort of small scholarship to Cambridge called an exhibition, which is like a small scholarship. And I think that was because of Isaiah's signature, because I wasn't a very bright girl. But um, it was mummy's acumen, her her street-smart chutzpah that <laughs> allowed her to do that. And I went to Cambridge, and when I went to Cambridge, my life changed.
0: Yeah, I read that as well. It's amazing to, to be immersed in that kind of environment and to let your let your wings kind of take, sh- take shape and fly a little. And uh, it sounded like that was, your, that was your chance to really find your way and, and, and work out who you were. You, you've got a very strong connection with Australia and Australians have this odd, I don't know, kind of habit of trying to own people. And when I looked up on the net, it says British Australian, you, you've actually gone and got your Australian citizenship, I, I think I understand, in the meantime, over the years. Why Why Australia? What was it about coming here, down under, that made you go, I, I want to spend some of my time in this country? It's, it's-
1: Oh, it's very simple, Tony. The reason that I'm Australian is because of the woman I fell in love with, mm-hmm. who is Australian. Heather, my partner of 53 years, I wanted to be with her for the rest of my life. We, we found a place to be together in Robertson in New South Wales. And I found that because I did Babe, the film about the little pig was set in Robertson. And um, I knew once I was there that that was the place for me. I just loved it and I still love it, as long as it doesn't change too much. That's the trouble with Australia. There's too much development for my liking, but things have to develop. I mean, that's the way of the world. But it was because of Australia that I wanted to be Australian. I mean, it was because of Australia and it was because of Heather. When I first came to Australia because of Heather, I loved it immediately. I was in Sydney. The sun shone, the people were beautiful. It's a glorious place. And I just fell in love with all of it. And the years went by and the years went by. And I thought I want to be able to come and I don't want to have to wait for visas. I want this to be my home i i have my my partner my life love i want to be here with her and so i got into australia on what's called same sex spouse entry sounds a bit rude but it's a perfectly normal and formal application and it was successful and It has brought into my life this great new continent for me, extraordinary vitality, energy. And I discovered the first nation. I didn't know anything about them. And I realized that this was another world that I could enjoy, that had delicious things waiting for me. And I never regretted it. So I am indeed, British-Australian.
0: And Heather, did she know the Southern Highlands already? Was she from that region? Is that so she was really comfortable about you guys choosing that part of the world to make another home for yourselves?
1: Well, she was uh, brought up in Canberra. Hmm. And when you, when you drive from Canberra to Melbourne, you go through that that area and her, her family was in mostly was in Melbourne. Uh, but her father was the head of mathematics at Dumtroon, the military college and that's where she was brought up so she knew roughly the southern highlands not not well but when when she came to visit me when i was doing babe she fell in love with it too and her sister Sounder, uh, we decided to buy some land which we did And then we built the road and then we built the house so i suppose we have developed in a way and we have gifted the land to australia we filled in whatever forms you have to fill in so that nobody can develop it it's just there part of australia
0: Mm. um so uh, Sydney to Sydney to Canberra, you would have gone through the Southern Highlands So Melbourne is in the other direction from Canberra to Melbourne. Well, um, then
1: how is it that she knew, she definitely said that they used to go, oh, maybe they were going to Sydney.
0: Yeah, they would
1: have. She would have gone that way. Yeah. But she said that they often drove through that, you know, that way. So I Absolutely. guess it, it would have been to Sydney.
0: Yeah, it's right along because that Melbourne highway. Because
1: Melbourne is the other direction.
0: Yeah. She, Melbourne is the other direction. They would have known it very well because it would have been a couple of hours' drive from Canberra on their way to Sydney. They would have stopped probably in Bowerall or or Mittagong or yes. somewhere and, and gone on their way. That
1: would be right. Yeah. That would be right. It would be on her way to Sydney, not on her way to, to Melbourne. And um, w- she and Sandra and I, we just love it. It's, mm. it, it's I don't know why, it's just wonderful. I, I love the scenery. I enjoy the it's a small country town. it's not it's not posh like Bowerl. Barrow's a bit um, a, a bit conscious of itself. but Robertson isn't it's just people getting on with their lives. Mm. And you have Kayama, which is quite close, which I love. that's why I enjoy the sea there. Mm. So we found ourselves a little bit of
0: paradise really. Terrific. So when, when we think about your book and you did tell us before about some of the things, the subjects that you wanted to cover off and, and absolutely it's all about you um, and about your, your origins and the people who have been important and the causes and the things that you believe in and your passions. Uh, And when you think about someone in ordering or grabbing a copy and, and they've, they've read the last page and they've put it down what what are you what are you hoping for you you know what it's like to do a performance to do your one your one person one woman uh, dickens show and you know what it's like what they're going to feel about and what they're going to think about over the next couple of days as they reflect on on one of your performances but your book what are you what are you hoping to ignite or or get them to ponder or, or think about that when they when they reflect on what you've accomplished and what you're passionate about
1: I hope that after reading it, they will feel they know me a lot better, that they will have laughed and had some insight into the world that I inhabit. But they will see also behind the humour and the naughtiness, the mischievousness, which is definitely there, and it's in the book, uh, that there is a living, breathing human being who is scared of things and And loves people and connection. Connection with people is the thing that drives me, I think. And they will just feel more comfortable. I think, well, I've read a book and I've really got inside Miriam Margulies. Not everybody wants to be there, of course, but that's what I offer.
0: There's something about your mischievousness. Something about when I see the interviews of you on some of those uh, talk shows and so forth. You, you just know that something naughty is going to come out. There's going to be some moment, and the, even just the facial expression or a, or a, the, the silence and just the way that you look in that moment, all of a sudden um, creates this this um, this this kind of situational kind of comedy and and what's going to come next do you think well there
1: is certainly uh quite a lot of naughtiness that um
0: good.
1: which will shock some people and delight others i have to tell the truth i've been a naughty girl <laughs> and, and it and, certainly comes out in the book and do you i never know which section of the of the book trade it should go in whether it should go in show business um politics or pornography but all of those are in it
0: but every shop <laughs> should have three copies or more of each and they should just make sure they're in all, all those sections just to cover our bases absolutely booktopia can do that really easily because it's just ticking on more categories but but from your experience or maybe heather or some of your closer friends do you do you find that your your mischievous is actually a little contagious do you, do, you, do you notice that that all of a sudden there's this pan? we're going to find a pandemic of mischievousness of naughtiness happening around the world because they've read your book and it's a it's a contagion that uh, that everyone's going to go, I, I think I should just be a little bit naughtier today because you never know where the Oh yes
1: be. I think naughtiness is catching and it's a very good thing wickedness is something else when i left school my french teacher miss Madron, whom i loved she said to me miriam you were often naughty but you were never wicked so i'd like people to think of me in that way naughty not wicked
0: but you were on wicked so that was um that's as far as it went
1: That's as far as it went. I loved being in Wicked, by the way, it was such a treat. I could sit in the wings and look at the dancers getting ready to go on because dancers are the most gorgeous people. They are beautiful to look at, they're great fun, and a lot of them, especially the men, are gay. And gay men dancers, gay male dancers, they are the most fun in the world.
0: What a treat everyone. I think, all right, well, if we haven't convinced you yet, um, I think those that are listening, Miriam Margulies, uh, um, your, your book is out. It's already out. This much is true. And by the way, the quote, this much is true. That, that is important to you. That that title of all titles, you, this much is true. Um,
1: Well, it was actually um, chosen by the publishers because they said it was a phrase I use all the time when I was telling them things. I'd say, well, this much is true. And they said, that's what you should call it. Now, I wanted to call it dike overflowing, but (laughs) the publishers who also publish Charles Darwin, Lord Byron and Jane Austen, they felt that perhaps that wasn't quite the title they wanted. Mm. in their august catalogue
0: so could have...
1: they asked me would i accept something that i had said to them and i said yes i think that's entirely proper because everything
0: is true yes well if you were, if it was called dyke overflowing you would have also probably got into the conservational or water irrigation category as well in the bookshop which could have increased sales by a further 25 percent, and so
1: no, I think I should be definitely in, in the gay and lesbian department. <laughs> yeah.
0: Miriam, congratulations on being able to, to take the time out. Thank, that's one of the gifts that the pandemic has brought us, the chance for Miriam to sit down in Tuscany and, and let it all out uh, for us to enjoy and to laugh and to cry and to be inspired mazel tov on on this accomplishment um, and we look forward to seeing you down under um, as soon as possible
1: thank you tony what a joy to talk to you thank you thank you for listening to the booktopia podcast channel don't forget you can subscribe to us on soundcloud and itunes for free